Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is Series 1, Episode 8 of the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Today, I will be discussing fish anatomy and physiology. In this podcast, I will discuss anatomical and physiological characteristics that you should know or at least be aware of to make you a better angler. First, I'll talk of the history of extant or living fish in the order of appearance in geologic time and thus the most primitive fish to the more advanced. I will further discuss history and diversity of fish, and then the anatomy, form, function, and physiology of fish and how it applies to you as a fly fisherman. Living fish first appeared around 544 million years ago in the Cambrian period. For a bit on geologic time and its names, I'll refer you to Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. Bill writes, because the British were the most active in the early years, British names are predominant in the geological lexicon. Devonian is, of course, from the English county of Devon. Cambrian comes from the Roman name for Wales, while Ordovician and Silurian recall ancient Welsh tribes, the Ordovices and Silures. But with the rise of geological prospecting elsewhere, names began to creep in from all over. Jurassic refers to the Jura Mountains on the border of France and Switzerland. Permian recalls the former Russian province of Perm in the Ural Mountains. For Cretaceous, from the Latin for chalk, we are indebted to a Belgian geologist with the perky name of J.J. de Omalius de Alloy. Fish taxonomy. We spoke of taxonomy in the entomology podcast, so we're going to do this again. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Fish belong to the kingdom Animalia. They're animals. Phylum chordata and subphylum vertebrata. Class is about as far as I'll go in this podcast. We'll do order, family, and genus in another episode. So for subclass Myzinoidea, the hagfish, class Petromyzonoidea, the lampreys, class Chondrichthyes, sharks, rays, and skates, class Osteichthyes, subclass 
Sarcoptergii, the lobe fin fish. Subclass Actinoroptigii, the ray fin fish. We'll go into more detail now. So, they're vertebrates. Vertebrae are a series of skeletal segments that enclose and protect the nerve cord. They go from the skull to the tailbone. And the skull is there to protect the brain. The backbone is to protect the nervous system. They say that fish pain is relative to the length of the spinal cord in relation to the fish's brain size, I believe. You can check back with me or look it up. Fish have an endoskeleton, which is a skeletal support structure on the inside of their body. That keeps their internal organs in place. The organs are supported when the fish is in water. Taking a fish out of water puts gravitational stress on the organs and the rest of the body. So when you're holding a fish by its head and a tail, and I'm guilty of this too, there's going to be that depression in its belly where all of those organs are sagging. If it's a shark or a ray or skate, it's even worse because they don't have that bone structure. We'll get into that soon. So when you put a fish down on the boat or the ground to take a picture, all of its weight is crushing whatever's on the bottom of it. So like I said, I'm guilty of it. I try not to do it. That's why we try not to do it. Let's talk about jaws. There are two types of fish. There are fish with jaws and without. Jawless fish are called agnathans. A in science means without, and nath means jaw, so it means without. Examples are hagfish and lamprey. Jawed fish have a jaw made of bone, and those will be trout. And there are also non-bone jaws, which are made of hardened cartilage, and you find those in sharks. Let's talk about the boneless fish. Boneless fish are known as the chondrichthians or chondrichthys. I may go back and forth depending on how I pronounce it. Cond, C-H-O-N-D, means cartilage. Ich means fish. These are your cartilaginous fishes, or boneless. Cartilaginous skeleton means they're soft-bodied. There's no bony thoracic cavity to support their organs. There's no rib cage like we have. Everything's just in that cavity together. These fish are adapted for eating and eating and eating. That's what sharks, rays, and skates do. They are eaters. Sharks are mostly predaceous, whale shark being the largest of all fish. Rays and skates are dorso-ventrally flattened like a pancake. Their gills are on the bottom, they're ventral, and they swim by undulating their pectoral fins. And we'll throw in ratfish or chimeras because I've seen a picture of one on a message board. They have a single gill opening, big head, they're found very deep. And they sort of look like several fish stuck together. Bony fish are the osteichthians or osteichthys. Osteo meaning bone like osteoporosis. Icht meaning fish, bony fishes. There's over 23,000 species of bony fishes. For sharks, there's like 350 plus, but it's going downhill fast because people are killing them before they can reproduce. Bony fish skeletons are made of bone, and we're going to throw in the term swim bladder or gas bladder here, which is a unique characteristic of bony fish. Previously, I subcategorized these into the sarcopterygii, or fleshy, thin fish. Examples are the coelacanth and lungfish. They have a heavy, thick body, slow-moving, bony elements in their fin. You might know lungfish because they can burrow in the mud and stay there in Australia and Africa for months, if not years, without water. And then when they get wet, they can come out of this mucousy cocoon. We had one as a pet in college in the 
science labs and it was in like four inches of water for the four years I was there it fed on dog food and it was just gross the professor was waiting for it to die so he could quote unquote pickle it for research not for food coelacanth you remember that um, the car commercial a couple years ago oh look a full size spare tire you know I thought that went the way of the coelacanth coelacanth was thought to be extinct they were caught off of South East Africa a woman who had taken a science class recognized this fish I want to say the story goes like this it was in a fish market she noticed it from geologic records and fossils contacted a museum who came and picked it up and it was discovered that this fish is now extant not extinct and I'll try and put one up on my website of the example at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum in DC which was about four and a half five feet long and in a giant vat of alcohol pickled the next sub Category is the Actinopterygii's, rayfin fish. Holocene, your first category, bowfins and gar, the primitive versions of this. They can breathe air, have very heavy scales. Chondrostenes, sturgeons and paddlefish, again, very primitive. And the teleosts, pretty much everything from now on we're going to talk about is teleosts. Modern fish, very diverse shapes from ocean sunfish to the seahorse. Those are pretty much what we're fishing for now. I don't know anybody who goes after coelacanth and lungfish. Bowfin are usually caught by accident. People definitely go for gar. Sturgeons are fished for and paddlefish, not really. They're mostly caught for their roe. Let's talk about fish diversity. Fish live all over the world, from hostile to docile environments, which is why we travel all over the place to look for fish. They can be found in fresh water, they can be found in salt water. Some fish live in fresh and salt water. Some can go back and forth, and that's the topic for another podcast. You can find them in high altitude lakes and rivers. You can find them at deep ocean depths. They come in a great variety of shapes, colors, sizes, characteristics. Like I said, 23,000 species plus. There's a lot to deal with. Fish are cold-blooded. They are ectotherms. Ecto meaning outside, therm meaning temperature. Their body temperature is dependent on ambient water temperatures. The water's 40 degrees, the fish is 40 degrees. The water's 90 degrees, the fish is 90 degrees. Its temperature is based on its environment. Their activity thus depends on water temperature. Some fish, if they're too cold, can't move. Trout that normally live in 50-ish degree water if they're in the winter during a snowstorm and you're getting that ice cold snow going in, their body temperature is going to slow down. They're more lethargic and they may not be as willing to chase after a fly. Fish also have to work with the ratio of loss of calories to gain the calories from chasing the meal. So that fish, if it's really cold, sees a little midge go by that's not in front of its face. Is it going to move? three inches to a foot out of its way to get that little meal? Is it going to gain more calories from going after that than it's going to lose in the process? And it's trying to stay warm. Calories are always lost in the form of heat. Energy is lost in the form of heat. So if you throw a giant four-inch streamer three feet away, the fish is more likely going to go after that big meal, which contains more calories, more energy, more ability to stay warm, and for that fish to survive. So you have to you know, throw in how cold is that fish? How willing is that fish to move? We talked about that in the entomology podcast. 
Some fish have warmer blood than others, like tuna. They are thus able to reach faster speeds. That expensive tuna sushi that's really dark red, that's more mitochondria and more blood because those fish can warm up their blood more towards the skull to enable them to swim faster, which is why when you hook into a false albacore, it's going to take off extremely fast and possibly bust up your knuckles if you don't get them out of the way because those fish are extremely fast. Fish have a unique characteristic, which are fins. Fins are a key defining characteristic of fish. Fins are supported by soft branching rays and spines. They come in a variety of shapes and sizes based on their needs, usually a blade shape to reduce drag and create lift, similar to bird wings, similar to what we then created based on fish and birds, airplane wings. Fins are just the side wings of a plane. Fin function, locomotion, they use them for swimming. They can use them to change direction. If you use a fin on one side and not the other, like paddle in a canoe, you're gonna turn. They maintain their location. You may see a trout holding the water with its little side fins, just kind of one on the left going up and down, the one on the right maybe a little bit less. It's trying to hold its position in that current. They may use them to dig nests. So they're gonna use that tail fin to move gravel around. They can use that to dislodge food. So they might be going in and smacking things around to kick up whatever might be under rocks or in the gravel or in the weeds. Fish swim. Fish move with and through the water, which creates drag. They're gonna thus keep their fins against their body to decrease drag. Faster fish create more drag and require more energy to move. Small fish move faster because they have less drag. Their body has got less mass in that water column. And the movement of that tail creates an empty space behind the fish that fills with water, which is a vacuum and it sucks them back. So they have to expend energy to get out of that vacuum. Now a non-fish example is the Jesus lizard. People think that it runs on the water. Technically, no. It runs, creates a depression in that water with its foot pulls it out fast enough before that water can enclose around it as a vacuum and trap it. I believe it was a 1998 article in Natural History Magazine. I can look it up. If I find it, I'll post it. Fish have a variety of body shapes. So if you don't know your trout by identifying them on site, you can use body shapes to help you. Fusiform is the general aerodynamic or water dynamic shape of a fish, torpedo. Most fish that you're targeting are going to be that shape. You can have compressive form, which means laterally flattened left and right sides like a sunfish. Depressive formies are dorso ventrally flattened like flounders and halibut. Anguilliformies are eel-shaped, long and slender, so that would be your eels. Taniformes are ribbon-shaped, your cutlass fish. If you've been to the Museum of Natural History in New York City, you've seen the picture of that 20-footer that those sailors found. They're holding it. Cool photo. Sagittiformes, arrow-shaped pike and barracuda. When I look at a barracuda, that thing is just built for speed. The way it's shaped, long head, fins in the back. It just It's made for power. That's why they're fun to fish for. And globiformes are globe-shaped fish. I doubt you're going to catch any of those. Let's talk about in-depth body shape. 
Most fish are bilaterally symmetrical. I talked about that in the entomology podcast. It means your left and right sides are the same. So if you split a fish down, it should have equal right eye, left eye, right nostril, left nostril, and every other anatomical part I will discuss further on. Fish are cephalized, or they exhibit cephalization. That is an evolutionary trait that came on once you got to um, larger life forms. Oysters, no. Fish, yes. You have a top, the dorsal side. The bottom, the ventral side. The sides, the lateral, the head, anterior, tail, posterior. I've been using these throughout, so hopefully you're familiar with some of them. If not, it's going to make sense from here on out. Now, when you're comparing these terms to a fish, think of your ventral side as your belly. Dorsal side is your back. Sides are your sides. Your head is the front. Tail would be the posterior or your feet are. And it should help you relate to my description of fish. Now, I'm going to be holding my giant fish-stuffed animal because it's anatomically correct. I was actually able to use it in ichthyology class in college to study from. I think I got it to Bed Bath & Beyond. So, body shapes. Fish are adapted to how and where they live, eat, and swim, reproduce, etc. They're streamlined for that fluid environment, which is why you don't see fish facing sideways in a stream because they're going to get caught and swept downstream. They're always facing upstream because they're aerodynamic, water dynamic. They're in that fluid environment. Water is 800 times more dense than air, so they have to use more calories to move through that. Their body shapes will be based on, like I said, where they live, what they eat. You have predator shapes and prey shapes. Predators, fast, able to move through the water, torpedo. Prey shapes can be anything. Everything that's smaller than the next fish is going to be prey. So you can kind of throw that generalization out. But you can definitely look at a fish and know if it's a predator. Barracuda, great white shark, pike, trout, snakehead. Built for speed and eating. Shaped on where they live, some fish live in the open water, requiem sharks, ocean sunfish. Some live on the bottom. You can have your wobegong sharks. You can have your soles. Top of the water, some fish live right in that surface area. I'm trying to think of an example right now. It's slipping my mind. I'll come back to that. And you can have ones that live inside something. They're going to burrow so they're shaped so they can burrow down into mud or sand. And some are built for ambush so they can be camouflaged back up against rocks, trees, logs, and not be seen. And fish have sexual dimorphism. Males and females of the same species may be colored, shaped, and sized differently. Think of birds. The darker female is cryptically camouflaged so she can sit on the nest and blend in, where the male is brightly colored so he can attract the females and just strut his stuff. A peacock, brightly colored. A peahen is white. She's not all fancy like the peacock. So, different fish, different shapes, sizes, colors. There's that one deep ocean fish. The male is basically gonads with a heartbeat. And the female is, you know what, thousand times her size. So she's like the size of a basketball. He's like the size of a jelly bean. And at some point, he's going to find her attached to her bloodstream so he can just be gonads attached to her and fertilize her eggs. Huge difference in size. We're talking thimble size to cantaloupe size. 
You'll notice this in salmon, the males get the distinct mating ritual body functions, which I will talk about later, compared to the females. Let's put this all together. So we've talked about vertebrae, cephalization, evolution, fins, swimming, cold-blooded. Where do these all fit in? There are three distinct body parts. We've talked about this in bugs, head, thorax, abdomen. Let's break it down to fish, head, trunk, tail. The head is the snout to the end of the gills. The trunk is the pectoral fins to the anus. The tail or caudal region is the anal fin to the end of the caudal fin. Several fish have a fake eye on their tail, so their head is not the target of attack. Cephalization, if you hit that head, you kill the organism. So fish don't want to be attacked on their head where their eyes are, so they put the spot on their tail. Now this comes into play when you're tying flies. If you're tying bait fish patterns, you want distinct eyes on the head. Those predatory fish know that if they go for that head, they're killing the organism. So you want them to bite the head, like on a clouser, where the hook is. So nose to tail body parts. You hear snout to tail a lot. That's more in the culinary term. You need everything from the pig's nose to the tail. We're going to talk about first the snout or nose, the mouth, the eyes, scales, gills and plates, lateral lines, pectoral fins, pelvic fins, dorsal fins, adipose fins, anal fins, caudal peduncles, caudal fins. It's not going to be going in the same order that you find it on the fish, so we're going to skip from dorsal to ventral, lateral, etc. But look at the pictures on my website if you want to listen and watch an example at the same time. The nose or snout is found between the eye and the front end of the mouth. Nostrils are set back from the front. Flow goes in and out so they can take in water and they can expel water to pick up minute particles. Heads on the nose and snout section can be used for pushing objects, moving rocks. The central stone roller of Virginia is going to move rocks around, pushing other fish. There's that video of the tarpon ramming the shark in Florida. Defense. Are they going to bite you? Teeth are located maybe on the tip of that nose or snout. And sharks have a particular organ called the ampullae of Lorenzini. These are small black pits used to detect minute electrical charges. So if there's a fish hiding in the sand, we all have those ions inside of us, and fish do too. It's electrical charges going on. They can detect that. Man, why do I keep saying detect? Detect. These sharks can detect those minute electrical pulses and find fish buried in the sand. It's also a reason why sharks may go after boat motors because they're picking up that electrical flow. You can tell sharks and fish that have been in aquariums too long, their noses are gonna be completely rubbed bare from bumping against the concrete or the glass. You also notice that in hatchery fish, their noses can be completely just raw from bumping into the sides. Let's talk about the mouth. The structure is made of cartilage or bone. The bone are called maxillaries. There's several of them in the mandible. The mouth opens to consume prey. Teeth, shape, and orientation, if present, depend on the type of food that is being eaten. Think of sharks. Tiger sharks have a tooth that is made to serrate. Mako sharks have teeth that are made to just puncture. Great whites just to shred things open. 
Wobegongs, guitars, the other fish that live on the bottom, they're going to be eating crabs, mussels, clams. Their teeth are made to crush. Inside the mouth, you have a bony tongue and sometimes a circular mouth with rasping teeth as in the lamprey. Lampreys are quite creepy looking. Location and shape of the mouth is based on where it eats. If it's on the top of the head, the fish probably feeds at the surface, looking up. If the mouth is on the bottom of the head, it probably feeds on the bottom, carp and catfish, bottom feeders. If it's at the front and center of the head, it probably feeds on what's in front of it. So we talked the mouth function is for eating. For most fish, if they fit it in their mouth, they will eat it. I once caught a sunfish the size of the palm of my hand, and it had a minnow that was about the size of a Twix candy bar sticking out of its mouth, yet it still managed to bite my fly. If it fits in their mouth, they will eat it. They can suck in food. Largemouth bass take a gulp and just make that vacuum and suck into their mouth whatever's out there. Moving rocks to form nests, we already talked about that. Mating, males get a kiped jaw. Sexual dimorphism. Their jaw will extend. The lower jaw will come up in a hook shape. They will get enlarged teeth inside that mouth. Not for eating, because these fish don't eat when they're migrating. Subject for another podcast. They are for biting other males and little love nips on the fish that they're trying to mate with, the female. Use them for defense. They can bite you. Fish don't have hands. They're going to use their mouth to do most of what they need to do. Catfish sturgeons have barbells which are elongated whiskers, sensory detection. They can pick up flavor molecules, tell you if things are edible or not edible, all sorts of sensory inside of those barbels. Spoke of teeth a minute ago. Teeth are along the mouth bones, roof of the mouth, back of the mouth. They've adapted over time to suit that fish's diet. So when I was talking about shark teeth, they're adapted to what that shark feeds on. Your fly material and leader can be destroyed based on the teeth. Pike, pickerel, steel leaders. You want flies that have epoxy on them, that are not soft. Those fish are going to destroy whatever you throw at them. Same with sharks, barracudas, you need that bite tippet. The purpose of teeth is to crush your food, like I mentioned, crabs, crustaceans, etc. Mussels, oysters, abalone. Slicing. Is a fish just going to swim into a school of fish, open its mouth, and slice things up and come back later? Or does it just want to slice it and just hold on to it? So that'd be your piercing. Barracuda, it's just going to hold on to you. Those teeth are going to pierce, go inside one end, come out the other. That fish is not getting free. Gripping, catfish have little nubby teeth. It's uh, more for just texture to give that fish a little something extra to hold on to when it's got something in its mouth. If the teeth are pointed back in the mouth, like those snakehead pictures I have, it's sort of like those spikes in a parking garage that if you go backwards, you're going to get stuck on. So when they bite something, it's not getting out. It's facing toward the fish's gullet. Teeth can be pointed, serrated, or nubby. Be careful when you're lipping a fish. You do it enough to bass, those little vermiform teeth are eventually going to pierce your skin. Don't want to do it at barracuda. Catfish is kind of hard. Most fish, I just would advise not putting your thumb in their mouth to hold them. It's going to hurt the fish, it's going to destroy your thumbs, and they made boga grips and nets and other things for that reason. Plus the teeth are going to destroy your flies after a while, foam beetles, I always get those destroyed by brown trout in the summer. I've just got a collection of flies that you can say, hey look what, you know, a salmon or 
big trout did this their teeth will destroy your material let's talk about eyes eyes the location orientation and size depends on where the fish lives and how it eats like their mouth are their eyes in the front are they viewing things in front of it or are they on the sides like a hammerhead some kind of catfish where they're gonna be looking at objects in more of a left and right and in front of them angle. Are they in the top of the head? So this fish maybe lives on the bottom like a sole or halibut and they're on the top. So just those eyes are gonna peek out of the sand it's hiding in. Are they set back from the snout? First time I saw that snake head, I couldn't believe how close those eyes were to the snout. Set right in front so they can just look at things in front of them and ambush, attack, do what they do. Fish don't have eyelids so they are sensitive to light which is why fish are crepuscular or diurnal active in early light and late light bigger fish tend to feed at night they're nocturnal because the sun isn't in their eyes we put on sunglasses they can't so during the day they're going to be hiding in structure in the shade where their eyes are protected that's one reason they're there they have a clear lens over their eyes so they can see Bonefish, great example, had that clear lens which gives them impeccable sight. Some fish don't even have eyes. You've got cave fish that lost them. They have no reason to have eyes, so eventually they just became like your appendix. They shriveled up, really no use, and eventually some of them just lost them completely. They can live in caves, deep in the ocean bottoms where eyesight is not necessary. Use that energy for something else convert that energy into a better sense of smell. Sharks have what's called a nictitating membrane. That's a little flap of skin that comes up and covers the eyes and protects it from when it goes to bite something. Sort of like a little camera aperture flashing. You'll notice that in any of the shark movies, anytime a shark goes to bite something, bait on top, that little white flap comes and covers the eyes. Pupil size is based on how much light they need. Bigger pupil will gather more light. It's like a wider camera angle or aperture. It's gonna gather more light, where a smaller one is going to gather less light. So if they got really big pupils, they may be living in dark waters where they need to gather more sunlight or more ambient light. Whatever's available for them to see, they're gonna gather that through a larger opening. Fish also have a limited cone shaped field of view in front and to the side. You read about this once every couple of months in a magazine on trout. They will show you the cone in front and to the sides of the fish, the certain angle where the trout cannot see at a certain point behind them to the left and right like in a car, your blind spot, which enables you to creep up from behind and fish for them without them seeing you. They're focused on what's in front, mostly because they live an environment where they're facing upstream and food is coming to them. They have other reasons to face upstream, mostly they're aerodynamic, but it's because food is coming to them. We'll get into uh, other sensory stuff soon about how they can detect you coming from behind without their sight. So taking out of this eyesight, fish cannot see certain angles behind and to the side of them, notably trout so you can sneak up from downstream. I will have a video um, link if I can find it. It's the ability of fish to distinguish between edible and non-edible particles based on sight. It's a pretty cool little video. Let's move on.
Scales. Fish scales are epidermal skin growths. They're not present in all fish, lampreys notably, because lampreys are primitive that had not evolved yet. Scales protect fish from pathogens. The skin or epidermis will secrete that slime or mucus, which is what keeps bacteria, fungi from attacking them, other parasitic stuff from feeding on them, which is why you should wet your hands when you hold fish. Dry hands, dry nets, anything else is going to remove that coating until it can be resecreted. Now I just bought buff sun gloves and I was holding a catfish the other day that I caught and noticed how am I going to maintain a wet hand if I've got this synthetic leather on them. So you have to figure that one out. Wet hands for holding fish. Scales also protect from predators. You can have modified scales such as spines in certain fish. The horn shark will have that modified spine so when a fish goes to bite down on it, it's going to have the roof of their mouth stuck like when you bite a tortilla chip and it gets right in the roof of your mouth, it hurts. Scales can also be colored. It's a cell called a chromatophore. Chrome meaning color, four meaning carrier. So fish can be different colored. Rainbow trout are called rainbow trout because they are rainbow colored. We call brown trout, brown trout because they are brown. Sunfish, well I think just because they're colors of like setting suns. Different fish have different colors based on where they live, camouflage, are they trying to attract a female so the males like the peacock will get very colorful. That's done with chromatophores. Fish also have something called a photophore, which is bioluminescent cells. A lot of deep water fish have those in their eyelids, those little baggy eyelids, like imagine if Bill Clinton was a fish. You'd have all sorts of photophores down in there. And they can light up and attract fish to them and then eat them. Fish have what's called countershading, very important if you are tying flies. Several other organisms have this. Dark top, light belly. Organism looking down sees a dark top, blends in with the bottom, doesn't see it. Organism looking up, light belly against bright sky, doesn't see it. So if you look at most fish from the side, the lateral view, light belly, dark top. Clouser minnow perfectly exemplifies this. White and chartreuse, white and olive, pink and white. Two different colors countershaded to represent the organism that fish you're targeting would be eating. Scales come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Not going to go into detail with that unless you want to know specifically a species to be identified by the scale shape. That's way over our heads right now. You can use scales like tree rings to age a fish. So when someone is sampling fish, they may pluck off a scale and use that for identification purposes. Some scales can be very armor-like, bowfin, tarpon, some of the larger Amazonian primitive air breathers. And I'm saying air breathers because they're primitive fish. They breathe air. We'll talk about that later. So they have primitive body shapes. Body shapes also include anatomical structures, scales. You can say uh, some you can shoot with like a bow and arrow and it'll bounce off. They're that hard. Some can be minute little flecks. Some can be the size of compact discs. After scales, we're going to talk about gills and gill plates. Gills on fish are external which means they have direct contact with the medium or water in which the oxygen is found. Our lungs are internal, so we have to breathe in the air. They're bathed in that medium which has the oxygen. 
They have rows and rows to increase surface area. Everything in biology I talk about relates to this. Every class I taught, I would focus on increasing surface area and preventing desiccation, drying out. Two themes in biology you can apply to everything. So fish gills are, well, you don't have to worry about desiccation because they're bathed in water. But they have rows and folded rows upon rows and rows, which increase the surface area so you have more space to absorb oxygen and release carbon dioxide. They're covered by a plate called an operculum. In Latin, that means cap, and that protects it. So when you see somebody holding a fish by the gills, they've reached in behind that operculum up into the gill, and they're holding that fish up. Now, that'd be the equivalent, I don't know, of me reaching down your throat and holding you by the base of your lungs. Doesn't look comfortable for the fish. I hope they're keeping that fish because it's probably not going to go back in the water and be able to breathe the same. They're very delicate because they're on the external. Gill slits may not be covered by an operculum. Example, chondrichthians don't have that. Their gills just have little flaps. Some fish have gill rakers, which separate food. They can also slice food, prevent it from going into the lungs and into the gullet. And they can also make noise. When you pull out a fish like a croaker and it's making noises, it's because it's rubbing those gill rakers together. And basically the function, gills are the site of gas diffusion. Gas diffuses directly into the bloodstream with a counter current flow. You have blood meeting water. Oxygen is going to go right into the bloodstream. The bloodstream is also going to put carbon dioxide back into the water. Direct contact, counter current flow. One goes in, one goes out. It's also the exit point for water when they engulf food. So when that largemouth bass inhales a sunfish, all that water they just inhaled and maybe some sand and other particles hopefully goes out the gills. Fish are very susceptible to low oxygen. So in summer when there's less oxygen, usually in warmer water, we talked about that in the hydrology podcast, fish are gonna go to where they can get more oxygen in the water. Trout especially are extremely susceptible. Sunfish and bass, less susceptible. That's why you find fish usually trout in bubbly water areas. There's more oxygen being diffused in. We talked about that in the hydrology podcast. And the color of the gills bright red because of all those blood vessels at the surface. All right, the lateral line, known as the acoustico lateralis, is that distinct line you see down a fish like striped bass or on snook. Snook had that distinct black line. It's analogous to our ear. Sound molecules move faster in water and water is denser. They can't have ears, they have lateral lines instead. Lateral lines, you've got the line going down. Within that line, you have a set of pits, and each pit goes to a smaller canal into its sensory organs, which goes to the brain. They pick up vibrations. If you are walking on the stream bank, you are sending vibrations into the water. Water is more dense. That sound is going to reach the fish. They know you're there. If your fly splats too loud, they can feel that. Sound of everything going on underwater, rocks being moved, ducks paddling around, you stepping in the water with your brand new rubber-soled shoes with cleats, they're going to hear that because of the vibration. One water molecule hits the one next to it, hits the one next to it, hits the one next to it, eventually it gets to the fish. Sound goes farther in water so they can detect you way before you know they have. So be careful when you're fishing. Don't make heavy splats with your fly. Don't enter the stream too loud. Don't make too much noise. Don't drop your anchor on the boat. All these things the fish can hear. Now the fish also is exposed to everything else in the water. 
all that sound of water rushing. Listen to one of my underwater videos. Just don't even look at it, listen to it. You can hear all the bubbles, rocks bouncing off each other. So when your flies in that water and you're stripping it in, how is that fish gonna distinguish that sound from all the other ones? They have to use like a mental sev from the sound hitting the lateral line pores, central nervous system to the brain. Is that the sound of a leaf on the water, a branch smacking the water? Is that the sound of a fly hitting the water and being stripped through? Fishing at night, the fish guaranteed they can see, but they're gonna hear also. You want big, pushy flies, something that's gonna vibrate and move the water. Same thing in murky water. Flies like the sea deucer. You want to strip that through, it's going to push the water, sending out vibrations that they can pick up. Let's talk about some fins. Pectoral fins. Think of your pecs. They're on your chest. So if you were lying down with your stomach down like Superman flying, pecs are on the bottom. These are the frontmost appendage of the fish, located on the shoulder, behind the head, on the ventral side. Think of Nemo. He had one that was a little smaller. They're used for steering. Think of you putting your hand out the car window when the car's moving. It catches air, moves up and down. These are moved in up, down, left, right, circular motion for locomotion. They can turn with them. If they use one more than the other, they're gonna go in circles like canoe. Some sharks, gray reef sharks specifically, use them as warning. If you're fishing, if you are snorkeling, scuba diving, you see gray sharks, great reef sharks and their pectoral fins are pointed down it means they are probably going to attack you they're also going to arch their back but their pec fins are going to have a distinct position that says watch out i'm pissed pelvic fin think of where your pelvis is on your body it's behind the pectoral fin on the ventral side it may help to support the fish on the bottom works as a keel or rudder some chondrichthians have these modified into what is called a clasper. Some have two, some have one, also known as a penis. The males will insert that in the female and that's how they reproduce. You can easily tell sharks raising skates because they have two sausage-like appendages hanging out from beneath them. The dorsal fin, the dorsal or top side of the body. They can have ray fins or non-ray fins. Easily distinguishable species by species if you sit down and count the rays. Each one comes up from the back and will branch out. Think of venation in a leaf, a ginkgo or oak tree. You're gonna see that venation. That is distinct to each species. The function of the dorsal fin, stabilization, like a boat keel or rudder. Sailfish, they have a big one. They can use that for conversing with other fish. It has great coloration. They can be quite large. Sharks, theirs will stick out of the water if they're in shallow enough water or on top most notably seen in the movie Jaws. I mentioned earlier some are used as defensive mechanisms. They can have a spike like the horn shark, so when something bites down, it's going to spit the organism out. And then you have the stonefish, extremely poisonous, has a poison gland in it. If you step on that, you are most likely gonna die. So be careful of fish that have modified dorsal fins with scales on them that may be harmful to you. Triggerfish. How did that fish get its name? Well, when scared, some of these fish might go inside crevices on the coral reef. They put up their dorsal fin and lock themselves in place. People would stick their hand in the crevice and there's a little trigger mechanism on that dorsal fin that you can pop and release it and pull the fish out, thusly named the trigger fish. 
the adipose fin. Adipose fin is behind the dorsal fin on some species. It is a fatty, fleshy material, sometimes clipped on hatchery fish to distinguish them, or mark and recapture, which means that you put a fish in that has a distinctive marking on it, so when you recapture it, you'll know it's one of yours. That's how you can distinguish hatchery fish from non-hatchery fish. Also, hatchery fish, they have that nose that's all messed up from going against concrete. Their pectoral fins may either be clipped or completely rubbed off because of the abrasion against the concrete. Adipose fins in some trout can be extremely colorful based on their diet. Some of the fish that live in tailwaters out west that feed on mice and shrimp, which are high in protein, will have a very distinct red dot structure on them. Think of flamingos. They get that coloration from the crustaceans they eat. Fish do too. That lateral line on that rainbow trout will be extremely red if they're feeding on those mice and shrimp. Reproductive organs, don't really need to know too much about this in fish. Most have internal organs. They release eggs and sperm into the environment, known as external fertilization. We spoke about our strategists earlier. You release thousands of eggs, fertilize them externally, hoping that some of them will be fertilized and very few of those will actually live to adulthood. Not all fish will care for their young. Some have broods that they will store in their mouth for protection. They will huddle them into corners, crevices, cracks, anywhere that they can protect them in nests. Not all fish do that. Sometimes they just fertilize them and let them go to the mercy of the current. Now, how does this benefit you? Well, if you're salmon fishing, salmon will be moving some eggs into place to make sure they don't get washed downstream. And maybe you're steelhead fishing at the same time, those steelhead are gonna come up and gorge themselves on those eggs. Eggs are extremely high in protein, they're very nutritious. So, when you have a female salmon releasing a couple thousand eggs at once, if your fly is the same color, you know that it's gonna bounce along the bottom, throw that fly, there should be steelhead waiting behind them to eat. Sharks, I mentioned earlier, some have internal fertilization with those claspers. The fish's anus, yeah, not important to fishing, unless you're talking about the one fish whose Latin name is Ephriododerus sayanus. We had a mnemonic, sayanus, his anus is right behind its mouth. So site of excretion, nitrogenous wastes are excreted, mixed with solids. Fish do not have to urinate because they're in that aqueous solution all the time. They can just get rid of their stuff solidly. They don't want to get dehydrated. They have to maintain that osmotic cellular pressure, water and salt percentage. That's more so done in their kidneys. Not really talking about kidneys in this because it's not important, but fish that live in salt water are overly exposed to salt. They don't want to have that salt draw out too much water from their cells. Yet freshwater fish can't go into salt water because it'll basically rupture their cells. So here in the Potomac, we've got the snakehead. Yeah, I'm going on a tangent. Um, snakeheads, geographical barrier, Great Falls, Chesapeake Bay. They can't go up the falls. They can't go into the bay because of the salinity. It's going to be a hypertonic solution. It'll kill them. We can talk about fish that go between fresh and salt another time on our annual periodicity podcast. Anal fin, it's ventral. It's behind the anus. Not much importance for you can be quite small. Um, maybe if you're tying flies, some of these smaller fins might come into play if you want to have an anatomically correct fish pattern. Caudal peduncle, that's the fleshy part of the tail between the end of the anal fin and the start of the caudal fin. 
slender tapers that's where most people are going to grab their fish to pull them out of the water we're either going to hold them in their hero shot holding the fish you can hold the fish on its caudal peduncle maybe one hand up by the operculum and you're going to hold the fish in front of you be like "Ooh, it looks so much bigger closer to the camera finlets mini triangle shaped fins on the peduncle most notably on tunas i'll throw a family name in that's the family scombridae we'll talk about families another time they provide additional stabilization for that fish to swim. That's how you can tell members of that family. Certain jacks, mackerel, tuna, all have those little finlets. Caudal fin shape. Caudal is the tail fin. You have heterocircle, half shaped. Think of sharks. One side is longer than the other. Thresher sharks have a very distinct heterocircle tail. That large top part is used for going to a school of fish and slashing it around killing the fish stunning them then the fish can come back around and eat those fish homocercal remember hetero means different so different shaped homo the same same shape has both top and bottom parts equal length this is more common think of trout it's your classic fork tail shape lunate we'll go back to the scombrids half moon shape these are seen in faster fish there's a greater vertical span ratio to fin than surface area, allowing for maximum thrust. It's all about the aerodynamic, hydrodynamic shape of that tail for thrusting. So that goes from snout to end. Let's talk about some other things. The alimentary canal or the digestive system goes from mouth to anus, a system for processing food and water. Fish are hungry, they eat. That's how we catch them. We're throwing a food morsel to them with a hook on it. Stomach contents show what a fish has recently eaten. Think of the license plate seen from Jaws. People use the stomach pumps to put down the fish's gullet and extract whatever they've been eating so they know what the fish has been eating. That bonefish I saw gutted in Kauai had nickel-sized pink crabs in it. I never would have known that they ate nickel-sized pink crabs there if I hadn't seen that fish gutted. If I ever go back, I'm going to take that color and size pattern. There's a classic story, I think it's off the coast of France several hundred years ago. A shark was caught, cut open, and there was a full chain metal suit of armor inside. Apparently a soldier had fallen in, probably drowned because he's wearing a metal outfit, and a shark ate him. Another classic story is an aquarium in Australia. There were two brothers that owned and run it, ran it. One of them had uh, very distinct arm tattoos he was out fishing one night trying to get some specimens for the aquarium. Somehow ended up in the water and disappeared. He was gone. No one had seen him for a while. The other brother and the aquarium workers ended up catching a shark for the aquarium within recent days. And they put it in the aquarium, circled around a couple times, and guess what it threw up? It threw up an arm. Guess what that arm had? Distinctive tattoos. So the stomach contents tell you what a fish eats. Unless you're gutting the fish or stomach pumping it, you really don't have any clue what it's eating other than just observing and seeing what it eats. Gas bladder, also known as a swim bladder. It's an organ that regulates buoyancy, the fish's location in the vertical water column. It's a gas-filled sac. It enables the fish to control its density and its depth in the water column. Fish can remain motionless in water without sinking, unlike most sharks. People think that sharks have to maintain a constant locomotion so they don't drown. That's not true. Just look at a nurse shark. They sit on the bottom. Most sharks are moving around because they're looking for food. 
You can have open and closed gas bladders. Open has a pneumatic duct connecting to the digestive system. It allows the fish to gulp air to fill the bladder to regulate the bladder and thus their buoyancy and location in the water column. Tarpons do that. We see the snakeheads all the time with the Potomac coming up, grabbing a gulp of air, going back down. More primitive fish have an open one. Closed later in evolutionary adaptation, closed bladder system gains and loses gases via the bloodstream circulation, that countercurrent mechanism of blood vessels in direct contact with water. A little bit about reproduction, I talked about mostly external. Um, inside the fish, you can have ovoviviparous, live egg bearing oviparous, which means they lay eggs, and viviparous, they bear live young. Most fish are gonna lay eggs, salmon eggs, pretty obvious. Um, sharks and skates will leave a, a little purse or pocket. They can attach those to substrate and plants and coral reefs, which will have a little baby inside of it. Some sharks, um, like tigers, can have that internal live birth. So there might be seven pups and only two come out because they all eat each other inside. Egg and yolk are analogous to beans, um, if you want an analogy here, which is why a lot of fish eat other fish's eggs. Um, we eat beans because they're extremely nutritious. It's the same thing to an organism with a yolk. It is basically nutritional contents for the developing embryo. That's why beans are extremely healthy and so are eggs. Well, to sum things up, we talked about anatomy and physiology of fish. Hopefully it'll give you a better understanding of some of the parts of a fish, why fish do what they do, where they are, where they are, why they eat what they eat, and why they look the way they do. We talked about the history of geologic time when they first appeared of the extant species. Some of the unique characteristics being that fish are vertebrates. They have that dorsal nerve cord. Some have jaws, some don't. The fins are unique to fish. We then went into snout to tail anatomy, the form and function of each, how that may or may not influence how you fish or how you tie your flies. And that pretty much sums up this podcast. I'll have some links and notes on my webpage, robsnowwhite.com. Yes, that's my real last name. It's Snow White with one W. You can go to the podcast link on the left. If you'd like to support the Fly Fishing Consultant podcast, please go to dragonflyfishing.com. I'm sure you need a beer lanyard as it's 97 degrees here today and people are outside doing whatever they're doing. They probably want a cold beer and free up their arms. I'll have some more links, other information on that website and tune into the next podcast. Thank you for downloading.